And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to another live edition of the Metrospective. I'm Ted Berg. Tim Britton is on the line with me. We're about to talk about a team that doesn't lose anymore. And I, I don't really know, like, what, what, what do you even say at this point? Yeah, I mean, the, the Reds came into town playing better than their overall record. The Cincinnati came in 19 games under 500. Uh, but they were, I think, 16-9 and nine in their last 25. They had lost a single series in eight or nine series since the Mets had played them at the start of July in Cincinnati and, and barely escaped with a series win then. Uh, and the Mets just kind of steamrolled them. Uh, they, you know, the, sure, Luis Castillo and, and Tyler Malley aren't in that rotation anymore. It helps to face uh, Justin Dunn in his first start of the year, Mike Miner, who is 1-8 with a 6 ERA, and TJ Zoik uh, making his first start of the year. That helps. Uh, and that bullpen isn't very good. But, uh, you know, taking care of business against lesser teams is something the Mets have been really, really good at this year. Uh, and and this, these past couple of days is just another example of that. And we're speaking on Thursday morning. The game on Wednesday, like you could circle on the calendar. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very murky definition uh, of a trap game. Like there's no there's, – I don't know that there's like a set uh, – like group of parameters that define what a trap game is, but uh, a, a, a day game, uh, but for a team that has been winning constantly with 10 straight games against your divisional rivals on the horizon uh, and a day off as well against the starter they've never seen before. Uh, like to me, it was just like, oh, this is going to be that game where like TJ Zoic comes out and throws seven solid innings and the Mets just can't score a run. And instead they scored 10 of them. Right, they you know they they got Zoic out of the game early. You know they just kind of put that game away very early. And I thought you know you look back at this whole series had that kind of potential to be a letdown series. And uh, one thing I've appreciated about Buck Showalter to this point is he acknowledges that that is a dynamic that exists. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know with other managers or other coaches in other sports who who talk up an opposition. And you know he he look, he doesn't say the Reds are a bad team, uh, but. Uh, he acknowledges that after winning four out of five in four days against Atlanta, uh, that, you know, it would be natural as a human being to feel somewhat less uh, amped for a Monday night against uh, a team that's 20 games under 500 in front of a much smaller crowd. And so I thought, you know, the real key to that series was Starling Marte's first inning home run on Monday, because outside of that, the offense was relatively sleepy on Monday. Uh, and Chris Bass is outing that night uh, to give him eight innings. Uh, you know, he's the one guy who didn't appear in that series against Atlanta, uh, and he pitched so very well for them on Monday to kind of set the tone for not just that game, but for the series as a whole. You you mentioned the taking four out of five against Atlanta, which we talked about a little bit on Monday, but you have made it clear to me that you have a take you did mm-hmm. not share about that series. 
So one thing I did not like about that series uh, was I, I didn't, you know, the, the crowded city field has been tremendous, especially lately. I think I did mention on the last podcast, and if I didn't, I, I should have, uh, that even in like the game where the Mets fell behind eight to nothing in the first two innings, the crowd was super into it in the middle innings. Like, you know, every rally, especially when the Mets cut the deficit to, I think, a five at, at one point in the middle innings, the crowd was really into it. it. It felt like a game that the Mets always had a chance to win. But one thing I did not like uh, was Mets fans doing the tomahawk chop uh, at some point, like to try to make fun of Atlanta. Uh, you know, I, I think we know what the chop is at this point. We've had, had active players come out and speak out against it. Uh, and I just, it, it, it's never sat well with me, like that as a person who grew up a Mets fan, like despise the tomahawk chop, uh, just from a competitive standpoint, let alone for what it means socially. Um, and then uh, on top of that, like, it's just taken to another level. The th- another thing that bothers me about, uh, Mets fans at times is when they chant Yankees suck at a game where the Yankees are not playing. That's um, the worst. That's, so that's, to me, that's a different thing. I think that's a yeah. different thing. Yeah, but it's just like, just you know, it's very cool after a game if, you know, we're going to the the elevator on the concourse and you hear fans streaming out of the stadium, going down the steps, chanting, let's go Mets, or going down, you know, going down the ramp to Shea Stadium. That was always such a cool feeling because it meant that, you know, the game had gone well, uh, it had been a big win, and everyone was really into it. Uh, and to hear people doing the tomahawk chop instead of chanting uh, for their own team, uh, I thought uh, I would prefer it to be different. Yeah, I mean, it's because it's the tomahawk chop, it feels like queasy to me because of the fact that it's like clearly racist. But I, I don't mind the mocking of the other team so much. And like that feels like what that is. To me, the Yankee suck chant at a game the Yankees are uninvolved in is like the smallest thing a fan can do because you're just you're just admitting that the standard bearer is the Yankees. And by chanting that they suck, you are like more or less admitting like that that is the that is the team that's that's better than mine. Um, like I was I was at a Red Sox Orioles game once in Baltimore when the Sox were good and the Orioles were miserable, which is many different times. Um, I don't know what year it was. It'd be a pick one. Um, and like half the fans there were from Boston or or Red Sox fans because Red Sox draw well pretty you know, draw pretty well everywhere. And after like a more or less like contentious first five innings between the Orioles fans and the Red Sox fans, they started breaking into the Yankees suck chant. And there was like the whole stadium is chanting Yankees suck now. And the Yankees aren't playing in this game. Yeah, it's that, that's it's such a little brother thing. Um, I, I, I heard, I think one guy tried to get an F Trey Young chant started. And I was glad that that did not pick up because that's just trying to transfer sports uh it's a weird new york atlanta thing i guess uh and also the nick the, the storied rivalry between new york and atlanta yeah right uh so uh that is my one complaint uh you know when the, when the team is going so well you have to dig deep for a complaint and that is my complaint yeah um we have we have uh people lining up for the queue already if you've got a question please join us i want to take one from email first um because most of the questions we're going to get are going to be for you because people want information and I only, I don't have any of that. Um, but this is from my, uh, my childhood neighbor, neighbor, Pat Barthel, who's emailed us before. And he wants to know, I feel like this is probably targeted at me. He says, if you owned a deli and were naming a sandwich after Daniel Fogelback, what would the sandwich look like? 
Would it have to be called the Vogie given his last stint in Pittsburgh with French fries appear on the sandwich? Do you have a take on this? Uh, you know, I, since it is Daniel Vogelback's sandwich, I feel like he's the one who gets to decide that. Yeah. Uh, well, you, want... you need you need him to come into your deli then, though. <laughs> right. right. Like this is a we, this is a we're just going to celebrate him. We don't know that he's going to. I would obviously you'd rather have his input on that. And you know, once upon a time, I had like a pretty uh, thorough knowledge of every Mets favorite sandwich, but uh, <laughs> it is no longer 2011. Uh, and so I don't know. Um, I, I so I'm thinking this is a tribute sandwich. This is not necessarily his favorite sandwich. Yeah. So uh, you know there is. When he was in Seattle, they did sell the Vogie Hoagie at Safeco or the T-Mobile, whatever they call it now. Um, looking it up, it was a smoked prime rib sandwich with jalapeno bacon, Mount Townsend's New Moon cheese, Tillamook sharp cheddar, avocado crema, crema, uh, avocado cream, chipotle, uh, chipotle aioli, and fresh cilantro. So that was That's Vogie a, that, that sounds That's, delicious, and nothing about it. I mean, other than that, it's like beefy yeah there's a lot of meat there like there i don't i don't feel the connection to dan vogelbach yeah you know i, I feel uh unless I feel unless he unless he designed it himself. meat on it i think i think you gotta you gotta have a it's gotta be stacked pretty high uh yeah i think that's fair I, but I, you know like unless unless he i want to know if he had any say in that making that sandwich otherwise to me like because he's so i actually did some research on this I'm just going to let you know. Um, my my yeah. instinct, my my first Research. instinct, um, my first instinct. I've done, yeah, I have a life life lifetime's worth of research on this uh, field. But especially, you know, Vogelback is from South Florida, Fort Myers, which is not this not Miami for our sandwich scene. But I, I figured like start with the Cuban sandwich base because that it is it's so very much the sandwich associated with that part of the world. Um, but I figured Vogelbach, it sounds very German. Um, and that's where the research came in. I looked into the surname Vogelbach. It is of German origin, very rare. There, there are not a lot of people in this world named Vogelbach. Um, the, the, highest, the highest instance is in the United States. Um, I think there are like 60, the site I found, which confirmed that there are tens of thousands of Britons and Bergs, said that there are only 111 people in the world named Vogelbach. Um, and like 60 of them are in the U.S. And I have to assume like most of those, if not all of those, are related like within two or three degrees to Dan Vogelback. And so, you know, very good for them. Um, but since it is German, my, my thought was you take out the, uh, the pork aspects of the Cuban sandwich and replace them with German sausage. Uh, bratwurst is the obvious choice. I happen to live near an incredible German sausage uh, butcher. Uh, Shaw and Weber, and they have Bauernwurst there, which is like a, a, a variant that's a little more peppery than Bratwurst. It has a little more flavor. So for me, it's like a Cuban sandwich um, with the, the German flair that you'd get from that sausage. You'd, you'd replace, you'd slice it. I think you split and grill the sausage um, and pile it up pretty high. And then uh, I, no French fries, despite his time in Pittsburgh. And I couldn't find a a quintessential Seattle element that I thought would fit into the sandwich. So I'm ignoring the fact that he came up with the Mariners. Uh, he did play with the Brewers and, and there I would assume picked up a, a taste for uh, spicy mustard. So I would replace the yellow. It was, the yellow. Drafted, 
he was drafted by Chicago, so you know, right. To yeah, to well, and that's complicated because Chicago has like lots of very strong opinions on <laughs> what can go on a sandwich. Um, I'm eliminating. I'm ignoring. I'm only talking very recent Dan Vogelback and <laughs> and historic. Like I'm skipping the middle. Um, so I'm giving us like a spicy brown, real Wisconsin type mustard on there instead of yellow mustard. And then because he played in Pittsburgh very briefly, uh, no French fries. I don't. Uh, the Primenti Brothers sandwiches are good, but I don't think the French fries really add all that much to a sandwich. I I always wonder about that that choice. Like if you're just adding sort of salty mushiness. Um, but I learned also that uh, the Big Mac was invented in Pittsburgh, and I always feel like when I eat a Cuban sandwich, it needs a little something sweet. And so I would include special sauce on the, the mm. which is just. Russian dressing, obviously, but we're calling it special sauce because Stan Vogelback is uh, is very special uh, um, to all of us. And so, uh, yeah, so Cuban sandwich, uh, replacing the pork and the ham with German sausage and adding spicy mustard rather than yellow mustard and some special sauce. Yeah, that sounds good. I could I could go for that. Uh, we got to talk to Dan. You could, could go ask Dan Vogelback what his favorite sandwich is. I'll tell you, uh, Dylan G., I interviewed one time, like two weeks after he came up and I asked him his favorite sandwich. And he said, tuna salad. Ooh. Like, oh, that's a minor leaguer sandwich, bro. Like, you gotta, <laughs> you're, in the, you're in the big leagues now. You're in the big leagues now. Like, add, add some potato chips. Uh, Mark N. has been waiting to ask us a question, uh, listening through my sandwich analysis. Mark, what is going on? Well, first of all, his favorite sandwich is all of them. But... Um, <laughs> Tim, I haven't talked to you in 10 years. I met you with Evan Drellick many years ago. And I want to say I really enjoy uh, reading your column and uh, Will's column. But here's my question. I live in Nashville, and I don't get the Met feed when the Mets play the Braves and when the Mets play the Reds. And so I had the Cincinnati feed during Keith's tirade about the Philadelphia Phillies. And I'm curious to know whether you think the Phillies will actually take that onto the field because they are a far better team than they were three weeks ago. That's my question. Thank you. Well, th thanks, Mark. It's good to hear your voice again. I, I wondered, I saw your, your name in the comments. I figured that was you uh, when you mentioned breakfast in Tennessee. Um, and, and thank you for the kind words. Um, yeah, Keith, Keith's rant about the Phillies not playing good fundamental baseball uh, was very true for the first first half of the season, really. But the Phillies have been a much better defensive team. Alec Bohm, who was kind of the, the central figure in the Phillies playing poor defense early on, you remember uh, him getting booed quite vociferously at Citizens Bank Park in a game against the Mets earlier this year, has been significantly better since then. Um, you know, I... I don't know that the Phillies need extra motivation uh, to, to play fundamentally sound baseball against the Mets. I think their fan base certainly uh, is more invested in it. Um, you know, this is a really, I think this is going to be a very fun two-week stretch for the Mets because you have them playing their best baseball going in. Uh, and they get the Phillies this weekend. Then they go to Atlanta for four more. get the Phillies again for four, four games in three days. And then they go to the Bronx for two. You know, this is really the last stretch where they're playing uh, – a bunch of really good teams at the, in in back to back to back, and the Phillies are playing their best of, of the season. I think they've won twelve of thirteen or thirteen of fourteen, and yet have 
I don't think they've picked up anything on the Mets, maybe a half game in that stretch. Uh, and so, you know, they've made their hay picking up games on San Diego, on Atlanta, uh, and they've got a, a chance to maybe get that, that fourth seed and get home field advantage in the first round. You know, it's going to be a fun series both both this weekend and next weekend with Philadelphia. I don't know that, that Keith's comments change that or enhance it at all, uh, but it would be, uh, you know, if, if the Phillies fall apart defensively, uh, or if they, you know, turn eight double plays on Friday, then then we might be talking about it. I'm glad you brought up. I think I don't. Did we talk about the bone thing earlier this season? We might have. I, I mean, I I thought it was so interesting the way that he just like embraced the fact. He's like, yeah, I, you know. I was, said it. He just came out and said like, oh no, you didn't. You didn't misread anything. Like I said, I effing hate this place, and I <laughs> right. meant it. And I meant it at the time. And like he was honest. And and then in response to his honesty, the fans cheered him the next night. Like I thought that was, um, you know, there's not a, a lot of Phillies fans don't have the best reputation in the world and deservedly so. But like I thought that was like really decent and human of the Phillies fans that that week. Yeah, I mean, for, for him to pinch hit the next night and get cheered uh, was just like I think it shows you what fans want most from their from their athletes, which, which is like authenticity and and being right. genuine. And- like, like, and I, I you know, I, I saw people who cover the Phillies who, who know Philadelphia better than I do uh, mentioning, like, we've all felt this way at some point. Philadelphia, you know, we've all felt that way about the Phillies, like, that it, it's just, it, you know, it humanizes uh, an athlete uh, in a different way. And I, I thought that was a really cool moment. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, like you said, like, it, I, it, it speaks to, it is a, an endorsement of honesty from, because like we are so used to the party line answer or the politically correct answer, or like, you know, never say anything to suggest you're not enjoying yourself playing baseball, never suggest uh, you're, you're shaken in any way by something the, the crowd is doing. Um, and a guy comes out and is just like, yeah, I was, I was mad and I said it, you know, and, and then everybody's like, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it... I think the, this weekend, and like I said, that these next two weekends, and really the next two weeks overall, because the Mets' schedule does lighten up considerably after that point, really outside of that series against the Dodgers, uh, until that the trip to Atlanta at the end of the season. Uh, that that these two weeks are going to be really fun, and, and the Mets have a chance to really put away the National League East at this point, uh, and then kind of say, build themselves toward October uh, from that point forward. Uh, we had a question in the comments from Eddie C, uh, which I just assume is Ed Coleman. It probably isn't Ed Coleman. Um, he wants to know, where does Dom Smith fit on this team when he's healthy? And do you guys believe he fits on this current roster uh, with Vogelbach, with who can also play first? Not to mention Darren Ruff. Uh, he doesn't mention Darren Ruff. But does it almost completely remove the need to have Dom? It seems that way. Yeah, like it's uh, – I don't know who the two guys who get – called up on September 1st are like uh, I think we talked about last time I'm not sure if there's a if, if only one can be a pitcher or if it can be two you would think David Peterson would be one of them uh, and then uh, at the current moment I would expect them would prefer to add two pitchers if, if that's possible again this is something I should have checked out after bringing it up last time uh, but you know if you're bringing another bench piece uh, I don't know that it's Smith necessarily because their bench is already kind of left leaning uh, especially against, um, you know, against the left-handed pitcher, it's left-leaning. 
you know, they've already played the platoon game. There's a lot of games where you're, you're looking at the, the bench and it's, it's Vogelback and it's Naquin who are, who are there. I don't know that Smith, you know, it means as much uh, in that regard. I don't know who the other position player you would call up is. Uh, you know, for the playoffs, maybe it's Terrence Gore uh, as a, a speed guy. You know, Travis Jankowski is a free agent again. <laughs> you could bring him back to fill that kind of defense and speed role as well. Uh, but, you know, that would be – Smith's chance is, is in September. He's not going to call up before that barring an injury. Uh, there is, you know, there's still the chance he plays an important role for this team. There, there, how many times have we seen uh, what you think that the roster is going to be – the postseason roster is going to be on August 11th is not what it looks like at all uh, when, once you get to the postseason or, or someone who seemed totally on the outskirts uh, then made a big push um, – you know, in 2013, Felix Dubrant was the Red Sox fifth starter, and, and there was a big question over whether he should be on the postseason roster even. Uh, and he didn't pitch well down the stretch of that season. Uh, and then he was like the most important, one of the most important pitchers on the staff in the World Series because St. Louis could not hit a left handed pitcher. Uh, and there was a chance that he was going to start game seven if it got that far. So uh, you never know how things might change. Oliver Perez in 2006, another example of that. Um, but I think at, at the moment, it's, it's tough to find where Dom's path to. Uh, playing time to uh, uh, really a spot on the roster is. I did think, I don't know if you read Anthony DeComo's story on Dom. I did. Uh, I, did. I was going to mention it. It was a good story. Um, and, and, you know, you hope that, that Dom has always been one of the most fun players on the team to cover because he's candid, he's open the way he was with Anthony. Uh, and uh, you hope that he's finding uh, some happiness and some peace with where he is right now and that he's able to, to find the form that he showed in 2020 because you know it's still in there somewhere. Yeah, I think, uh, again, like uh, it seems like everybody wants uh, – Mets fans want nothing but goodwill for Dom Smith. Um, but it also seems like with, with Vogelbach and Ruffinhouse, um, they have guys who are doing what they hoped Smith could do in terms of being like, you know, bench bats or platoon bats and backup first baseman, uh, certainly better than he was doing it. And so it's hard to figure where he fits in. But like you said – uh, it's pointless to speculate on, on rosters for late in the season at this point in the season, and I want to, very briefly, because we have another question in the queue, but I just thought about this. Right now, if the season ended today and you had to go into the postseason, who is the odd man out in the starting rotation? And this is a good problem. Yeah, it's a very good problem, and I think there's, there's really two different ways you can approach it. The first is, who is the guy who, who's the worst starter? That's really tough to answer right now. Yeah. They're all really well. The other, and maybe that means that you, you go in the direction of the second question, which is, which of these guys could be the best reliever? Mm-hmm. Um, and you say, you know, in that regard, to me, and, and, you know, it's tough because Walker and Carrasco don't have significant relief experience at the major league level, certainly not in the last several years. Walker's stuff to me seems like I can imagine Taiwan Walker being a guy who just pitches uh, one inning a night in several different playoff games really well. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. his, you know, fastball and his, his splitter work, like he could be a fastball splitter reliever uh, and be really effective for you. And you say maybe, the, you know, Walker has pitched better and more consistently than Carrasco this season, uh, really has had just the one bad start. You say maybe the drop-off from Walker to Carrasco in this, that one, you know, that one start per series that he'd be making is worth the, uh, you know, potential benefit of having him in the bullpen rather than Carrasco, whose stuff doesn't seem like it plays quite the same way uh, that, that Walker's might in a shorter stint. And so you're – because I, the other thing I was thinking was just um, – and I don't – I think – did I read it on The Athletic about, about Chris Bassett's, like, attitude on pitch counts and such? 
Uh, yeah. Um, was that you or was that Will? So that, that was me. That, that he, he's just like, oh, he, he wants to throw 115 to 120 every night. Uh, and Buck doesn't let him. Yeah, and so, like, that made me think, and, like, obviously that's different than being a reliever, but that, that attitude – like uh, let me go let me let me pitch longer to me like that made me think like oh maybe this guy and like again like i don't know what caresco's routines are i don't know what walkers or bassets on their start days but i wondered from that if there's a case that like oh bassett's going to be game to go every day if you need him in the postseason um and and like maybe that's the guy you move just because of like prep preparation and willingness he does have a bit more experience as a reliever too, because he's—I mean—he's had good starter seasons where he got shifted to the pen anyway. When Oakland had, had good pitchers, his reliever ERA over his career is two six zero. But that's—I uh, guess he's—he's he's only relieved in twelve games. Uh, oh, sorry, seven games since twenty eighteen. Four and four and eighteen, three and nineteen. So I don't know how much you dig into that. They're all basically in long relief. Um, I do think he—he he reminds me a bit. His attitude reminds me a bit of uh, when Rick Porcello was, was going good as a starter in Boston, uh, and he pitched a bunch in the postseason out of the bullpen. And by a bunch, I want to double-check that, uh, that it was. So in 2018, uh, he made uh, bullpen appearances, uh, and he made one in 2017 as well. Uh, so a guy who like, could come in and pitch an inning for you when you need it on his throw day. I think that's where Bassett fits in maybe a little bit more. Okay. And, okay. He's your game three starter, and then it's it's game five, and you need someone to throw the seventh, and Chris Bassett's your guy. Um, I can imagine him filling that role uh, and really relishing it too. Uh, that 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 seems like where he fits. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Direct TV satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Direct TV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Direct TV over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream Direct TV without a satellite dish. Call one eight hundred Direct TV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. 
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. William S. is on the line. William, what's going on? Hey, guys. Um, everything's going really well at the Mets, so I'm in a bit of a celebratory mood, and I have a silly question. Um, I'm curious, where do you think... What are the chances are any of the Mets win any kind of awards this year? And I'm not just talking MVP or Cy Young, which they look kind of boxed out of, but you know, Gold Gloves, uh, Comeback Player of the Year, Silver Sluggers, uh, Manager of the Year. I don't know, right on down the line. Can you see um, which Mets do you think have the best chance to win some kind of hardware? Thanks. Yeah, thank, thanks for the question, William. Uh, it is it is so nice to be asked to be talking about this on August 11th instead of uh, what we were talking about on August 11th last year, or you know, this this time of year last year when the team was really falling apart. Uh, I think I think Buck Showalter is probably going to win Manager of the Year in the National League unanimously. Um, you know, I, I think I don't know who his chief competition is, whether it's Dave Roberts again or Bob Melvin in San Diego. Uh, you know, maybe uh, Rob Thompson in Philadelphia might actually be the, the main competition there. Um, so I, I think Showalter, it's hard to imagine him not winning it at this point, as long as the Mets make the playoffs. Uh, Silver Slugger, I mean, Lindor's got a good case at shortstop. Uh, Nimmo's got a good case in center, I would think. I haven't looked at the numbers exactly. Uh, Silver Slugger is not something I follow super closely. Um, Gold Glove, um, you know, if people have made the case for Guillaume. There's just not, like, the pathway to it because he plays multiple positions. And while managers have said four years, we should have a gold glove for guys who play multiple positions. Uh, they don't have a gold glove for guys who play multiple positions. So, uh, you know, maybe he gets a, a, they throw him a bone and give it to him for second base or something, but I, I doubt that happens. Uh, I would just throw in that uh, as of this morning, and, and it seems like, you know, the NL MVP award is clearly Paul Goldschmidt's to lose at this point. As of this morning, Francisco Landor is, is fourth in the, in the majors among the position players in one. Yeah, I mean, like, he's going to get MVP votes. He's going to – he's likely, I think, to finish higher in the MVP balloting than Pete Alonso, which sure didn't seem like it was going to be the case a couple months ago. You know, Lindor's – this hot streak has been, <laughs> has been a really long hot streak uh, for him. It really goes back uh, to, to late June, early July. It's been more than a month of him uh, just, just hammering the ball all over the field. Uh, and his, his defense, which, you know, the metrics were, were down on earlier in the season, has looked really sharp. Uh, really since that, that point in the year. So he's been, uh, you know, this is this has looked like the Lindor that we saw in Cleveland during his best years. It's, it's not quite as many home runs as, as he hit, uh, what, the one year he had 37, 38 in Cleveland, but he's, he's got an outside shot to get into 30. Um, and uh, that, that means war in a, a time when the ball is not juiced. It's, it's really a, a phenomenal season that I think, you know, probably the best season a Mets shortstop has ever had or close to it. It's, it's right up there with anything Jose Reyes has done. Uh, and, you know, could be a, a maybe a top five or six MVP finish for him. Yeah, I think uh, just to mention the hot streak, since the Mets started, since their three-game losing streak, um, I, I think I want to say it, go, it goes back to July 24th when they started winning on this stretch with 14 of 16 or whatever, uh, Lindor has a 1,200 OPS. That's good, Ted. It is good. Uh we have some questions in the chat. No one's in the queue right now. Um, I did, I'll see. I did, want, I did want to 
respond to one of them in the queue, one of the early ones, when, when Corey F. suggested that the Yankees suck chanters are false flag operatives at City Field. Uh, I, like, I like the conspiracy theory in that, but I don't think it's true. I can't afford Yankees tickets, so I'm just going to go to City Field and uh, and in a backhanded way remind everybody of my team's dominance. It's, I, I mean, it. it's, it's, it's chess on more than two dimensions. Uh, see Q wants to know, is James McCann going to be okay? Also, can he please change his walk-up music? What is James McCann's walk-up music? Do you know offhand? I don't know offhand. Um, I feel like I, I noticed it somehow at, at the game a, a couple weeks ago, um, but I don't, I don't know what it is. We can look that up. But is he going to be okay? I, I don't really know like what that means at this point. <laughs> yeah, we have to define okay. I mean, he's healthier now that, that he's off the injured list. Uh, you know, it seems like at, at the moment that catcher is uh, a, a maybe a 50-50 split, maybe even just slightly uh, 55-45, 60-40 toward Tomas Nito, the way he's played this year. Uh, you know, Nito's overall offensive numbers do not jump off the page uh, in, a, in a good way, but his, he's really saved his hits for the right moments, uh, which, you know, maybe is not something you think continues in perpetuity, but is really useful when it does happen that way, uh, as it has for him this year. You know, McCann, I still think there's you, – you can, you can hold that he's not going to be the offensive player that he was in 2019 and 2020 for the White Sox while still thinking he, he's going to be better than what he's been for the Mets so far uh, in a season and a half. And this year in particular, he hasn't been healthy, really dating back to spring training where he missed some time as well. So it's just been impossible for him to find any kind of offensive rhythm uh, at any point. Uh, you know, the, the Mets, their, their catchers are going to hit ninth the rest of the season. They've hit ninth almost the entire year. Uh, and you, you count on them for what they bring defensively uh, and in terms of game calling. And they've been really good at that. And we shouldn't overlook that when we're evaluating them. And you're just not going to get as much offense out of them. And you're okay with that, especially when the, the rest of the lineup is operating the way it has been lately. How about Nito as a gold glove candidate? Uh, you know, I, I guess there's a chance for that. Uh, I, I have to look at is that one of the ones that Yadier Molina has just won for like the last 70 years and he's never going to lose while he's playing? But, he, but he's missed so much time this year. Uh, yeah, but it's, but it's the Gold Glove Award. It's like a, you, win, you win on like an honorary basis. <laughs> uh, so I, I have to look at how Nito's games played uh, at the position, you know, because he's, he's probably played like half the Mets games, maybe even more than that at this point. Um, and so maybe he does stack up there with, with kind of the, these guys who were everyday catchers from the start of the season in terms of, of how often he's been back there. Because uh, he is a, a really good defensive catcher, uh, not just in terms of um, his arm, which we talk about, uh, which is the kind of the most tangible element, but also in those other things of pitch framing and pitch blocking. Uh, I think I saw one step. He's among the, he, he like leads the league in pitches blocked in the dirt, uh, according to Baseball Info Solutions, which is something that I didn't even realize we were tracking, but it, it fits the eye test with him. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's like, and catcher defense is still like, even, um, as we learn much more about it, like even as they start incorporating framing metrics and stuff, it's still like a very hard thing to peg down. If you go by the fan graphs, like overall ranking, he is third in the national league, but a close third, um, behind JT Real Muto and Travis Darnell. 
Yeah, so like Rio Muto, because he's got some name recognition, has been the everyday catcher, and has a good defensive reputation, would probably be your front runner for Gold Glove. There is my guess. Yeah, and and uh, and I'm assuming he's the one who won it. Uh, Molina actually hasn't won since 2019. Um, it shows you how closely I follow the Gold Gloves. No, it wasn't Rio Muto who won it in 2021 either. That will remain a mystery. Um, maybe we can look that up, or I can look that up. Um, or you can if you have Google.com at home. Uh, Shmuel H wants to know, uh, Brandon Nimmo's walk rate is down from pre- previous years. While well, he's been very good, his 119 OPS plus is not as strong as he has been. The aggressive approach has lowered his strikeouts, but is this a, a worse or same level of os- offensive threat? It's not quite the same level. Uh, you know, the aggressive approach, like we've seen, Brandon Nimmo carry a 400 on base percentage and hit a bunch of home runs like he did in, in 2018. Uh, when, especially for, for stretches of that season, I think it was like June of that season, he hit most of those home runs. Uh, you know, uh, but I, I think that really the, the most valuable thing that Nimmo has been able to do this year is stay on the field. Um, and that's been, that's the thing that, you know, when we get to the off season and Brandon Nimmo hits free agency, like I look at him a little bit like I looked at Zach Wheeler uh, a few years ago. Uh, he's a guy who has consistently gotten better. Uh, he's a guy who's hitting free agency. You know, he's, this is his age 29 season. He's going to be 30 going into free agency. It's not Juan Soto hitting free agency at 26, but it's still it's not someone that, you know, like Jeff McNeil is going to hit it after he's 30. Jacob DeGrom is going to hit it after 30. He's hitting free agency at the right time. That uh, I think, like, the, the deal that Brandon Nimmo signs is going to surprise a lot of casual baseball fans uh, in the same way that, Wheeler's surprise, even uh, people mm-hmm. who covered him for the athletic. Uh, but uh, I think he's got a chance to live up to a nine-figure contract that surprises people because he does so many different things well and because he's shown this year at least uh, an ability to stay on the field uh, over the course of an entire season. I think that's been the most important thing for him. That's been the most valuable thing he's brought to the Mets. And then you add in that he's, he's gotten so much better defensively in center field. He's made several really, really good catches this year mm-hmm. uh, that we're seeing him make. The on-base percentage is down, but I, I buy the track record there more than anything. But I think if you're asking me from this point forward, do I think Brandon Nimmo is going to have a better than 355 on-base percentage? I think the answer is yes, uh, because he's done that over the course of his career. Uh, and so uh, I think to this point, it hasn't been like a vintage year for him, but that's been, that, that is in some ways a good thing because he's been on the field for so much. Yeah, I think that's right. I would also just note that I feel like when we talk about like, oh, he showed more power in 2018 or 2019, like there's a big asterisk there, right? Because not that, uh, not that, uh, not like a steroid asterisk or anything like that, but just that the ball was different. Like there is, it's clear from the numbers that the ball was different, especially in 2019. Um, and so like, it's, it's unreasonable to say like, oh, you know, this guy hit 30 home runs or this guy hit 20 home runs. Like, why can't he do it now? They're not going to do it now because it's a, it's a, you're playing with different equipment. Right. I mean, it's like Jeff McNeil that in 2019, I think it was, with 16 or 17 home runs in the second half of the season. Uh, yeah. And that's not going to be who he is moving forward. And, and it's probably good for the sport that, that there is some more uh, diversity in offensive talents than just, you know, a bunch of guys, a bunch of guys like Freddie Galvis hitting 30 home runs uh, over the course of the season. Yeah. Uh, this is a this is the type of question you get when the team doesn't lose. Uh, Wally T wants to know: Do you think they should have given Edwin Diaz an inning yesterday when he hasn't been used in days? I thought his family might have enjoyed. It. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think that would have been 
Uh, it would have been nice for his family. He had the day off on Thursday. Uh, but They got know, those been... jerseys made. They got those jerseys made, right? Like, I, know, it was a big it series. Really when uh, Edwin and his brother Alexis were bringing out the lineup cards on Tuesday night, they showed his family on the, the scoreboard. Uh, and it was so cute because his, his parents acted like normal fans when they get on the scoreboard. <laughs> like they just started uh-huh. point scoreboard and started jumping up and down. Um, and, you know, when we were in Cincinnati, we, we talked to his dad a little bit just in the corridor outside uh, the clubhouse after a couple of those games. Uh, and like the, uh, you, you want to talk about being authentic, like the authenticity of his pride in, in both of his sons. And you understand exactly why he would feel that way uh, was so overwhelming. Uh, it was so, it was so much fun to talk to him, just how excited he was uh, that not only are his, are his sons in the major leagues, two of his sons in the major leagues, uh, but they're performing the way they are. I mean, Edwin's having this, this ridiculous historically uh, historical season, uh, and Alexis is having an amazing rookie season for Cincinnati as well. Uh, so that, that, that was really cool to see then. It was really cool to see the other day. Uh, yes, it might have been cool to see Edwin Diaz pitch on Wednesday, but uh, I'm not too overly concerned about, about his potential rust going into Friday. Yeah, I think, and I think there's a case also to be made for, like, if you can give this guy three or four days off and, and let him cool down a little bit, like, you, you know, you want to save all those bullets for the postseason. Uh, Alexis Diaz is having a really nice season, too. Edwin Diaz, this is more research I did. Um, by, by fielding independent pitching, uh, among all pitchers with at least 40 innings in a season ever, he's second to uh, Craig Kimbrell in 2012. And on XFIP, uh, which only dates back to 2002 because it relies on batted ball data, this is the, the greatest 40 inning season that has ever existed. That's pretty good. It's very good. (laughs) And I'm glad, and I mean, we didn't even talk about it, but now the world is hipped to the Narcos thing. Yeah, it is. It seems like this is the, this is the time it is finally blown up this week. Like we saw the SNY video on Twitter and people beyond Mets fans realizing what was going on when, when Edwin Diaz came into a game. Uh, So it's no longer just a well-kept secret in Queens, and, and it probably won't be uh, when we get to October. Uh, and, you know, cool to see. It's good to see, you know, Timmy Trumpet. This has got to be good for his career. Yeah, and Blaster Jacks, you know. Uh, of course. Finally getting the uh, the uh, Major League Baseball audience that they have clearly craved for so long. Uh, Anthony W. wants to know, Congratulations, you guys, on winning six in a row and beating the Braves four or five games. Oh, that didn't win a World Series? Dwight Gooden and Strawberry ain't coming through that door. Chop on. Let's go, Braves. I don't think, yeah. that, I don't think, that's, a, I don't think that's a question. <laughs> I think it's uh, someone hanging out in this podcast uh, on, on August 11th. Uh, look. Uh, Thanks for I listening. Think, <laughs> I, I don't understand the fan, especially like a fan of Atlanta. Uh, like you don't judge your fan experience of a sport like baseball strictly on, on who wins the World Series at the end of the season. Uh, like as a Mets fan, I could appreciate that Chipper Jones is really good, even though he didn't win a World Series after his rookie season. Or that Andrew Jones is really good, even though he never won a World Series there. Uh, that they had three Hall of Fame pitchers, but, uh, you know that they won so many division titles and it only was the one World Series in '95. That like you can get enjoyment out of the sport based off other things, including. Uh, like a huge series win in August against uh, your primary rivals. That's that's fine. Yeah, um, but you know, 
credit to Anthony for doing opposition research, right? Like that, that is a dedicated Braves fan. If you were listening to Mets podcasts to hear what the hosts have to say about your team. <laughs> yes, that is, uh, you know, diving in. Cause I know, I know we have uh, our Atlanta podcast with Dave O'Brien and Eric O'Flaherty. That is also really good. So I, I assume that Anthony is listening to all of our baseball podcasts. He, oh, he's a, he's a completist. Uh, we'll take one more from the, from the chat. This is from Michael F. Um, he says, it sure seems like the Mets completely changed their clubhouse culture with their offseason pickups and hiring Buck. Seems to have settled Lindor. The results speak for themselves. Considering Vogelback and Naquin have ties to two of the leaders on this team, Vogel with Pete and Lindor when they were, and well, but, but uh, Vogelback also has a, a connection to Lindor because they played together in high school. Um, he says, but he says Vogel song with, with Pete Alonso and Lindor when they were younger. And oh, he does say Lindor. And Naquin with Lindor in Cleveland. How important was that familiarity with those two acquisitions? That's an interesting question. Uh, you know, I don't know if it was an overriding factor. Uh, I'm, I'm, I don't think it's a primary factor. It's probably like uh, this guy fits our roster. Oh, and hey, he knows a couple people. You know, and uh, you know, maybe when you're about to acquire Tyler Naquin, you talk to Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. Like, is this guy? Well, this guy fit the, the rooms basically. Right. Uh, and heard is that Naquin would very easily. See uh, Trent Rosecrans, who covers the Reds for the Athletic. Said that Naquin doesn't doesn't seem that way to the general reporter, but is actually a, a very funny player. Uh, that that guys always think, call him one of the funniest guys on the team. Uh, and you go back to the off season with with Canna, with Escobar, with Marte, with Chris Bassett, and, and obviously with Scherzer. All of those like all of those guys come with pretty sterling clubhouse reputations. Guys who kind of you know fit into a team construct overall. We've seen it with the starting rotation and, and just how excited they all are to talk about different things in the dugout. Escobar has as good a reputation as basically any teammate in baseball at this point. Uh, Canna uh, in, in Oakland was known for that as well. So it's just, it seems like, uh, you know, when, when I covered the Red Sox before the 2013 season, their clubhouse had been such a mess in 11 and 12 that the first guys they got were David Ross and Johnny Gomes, kind of role players, and even more so role players than Ken and Escobar, everyday guys. Gomes and Ross were not. Uh, but it was just kind of to settle the clubhouse and to find people who wanted to embrace the challenge of playing in a market like Boston. Uh, and the Mets seem to have found players who want to embrace the challenge of playing in New York instead of looking at the downsides of it. And it's really, you know, obviously playing well is the most important part, and that is probably the starts this whole process. But uh, it doesn't hurt when you have guys who are, are open to that challenge and want to embrace it. Something I love about the team, and something this is something Will Salmon wrote about this week, um, is that it feels like they're like more than any other team I've ever seen. I think it feels like they're always talking to each other about what's about it. Like every time a guy finishes his at bat, he goes to the guy who's on deck or in the hole and says, "Like this is what I saw." Like and and as he wrote, like Lindor and and Pete Alonso are, are generally in the center of it, but it does feel like every guy in this offense is invested in getting that information and sharing it. Um, and that's been fun to watch too. Yeah. To, to have uh, that kind of communication, but you just want to help teammates out. And I thought it was really interesting, the perspective that uh, Francisco gave when talking to Will about just the, the way he, he kind of understands how to better communicate those things, like which guys want to hear that, which guys don't, uh, that he doesn't have to be kind of the coach in everyone's ear the way he was maybe at times last year. Uh, and just kind of know, know his place. He doesn't, he doesn't feel like he has to do as much leading as maybe he thought he had to going into last season 
uh, and just feels a lot more comfortable doing that this year than last year. Again, we see this theme in baseball where you should never try to do too much. And so there, I feel like we should do no more. <laughs> yes. Um, if you've got questions for us for, for the next week's show, uh, the recorded show, you can email asktedberg at gmail.com or get at us on Twitter. Tim's at Tim Britton. I'm at OG Ted Berg. Uh, we will be back to discuss this weekend series with Philadelphia and which team has broken its hot streak uh, early next week. But until then, Tim, peace out. Adios.